How do you stay creative when you just aren't feeling it? How do you understand if anybody actually cares about the podcast you're making or if there's sufficient demand for it? How can you pick topics with a purpose, gather and synthesize listener feedback, and grow your show beyond the people you know in person? Hey, it's Jay, and today we're doing a listener mailbag straight from people like you. I want to know how to do the things you do. All right, so we're mixing things up a bit today. Instead of dissecting a single show, I put out some feelers in June on Twitter for some tough questions that you just can't Google the answers to, all about making better shows and serving your community and finding and sharing your voice and making a difference, making a show that makes a difference, not just making a show. And I think maybe I'll try doing these mailbags every so often, but if you have a question you want answered on the pod, tweet me at Jayakunzo, or literally find me anywhere on the internet. I'm super responsive. Ask me a question. I'll add it to the queue, and we'll do these maybe once a month, uh, give or take. Before we get started with the listener questions, some news. We here at Marketing Showrunners have launched a new page of the website. That's not the real news. It's what's on the website. The Showrunner Sessions. These are our online, interactive, cohort-based workshops for makers and marketers. And it's all about one thing how to make your audience's favorite show, how to find and share your voice and make a difference for those you aim to serve. In these workshops, which by the way are not recorded videos, it's doing real work on your real show together with peers and guided by us. In these workshops, we focus on the show development process and we run a system called the Showrunner's Circle, which focuses on the four biggest challenges facing anybody who makes a show. And we're piloting this workshop right now as I'm recording these words in late June 2020. We're going through the first alpha class, we're calling it, and it's going really well. So we decided to open it up and we're doing a second session late August 2020. The date will be announced soon. So head over to that landing page, go to marketingshowrunners.com and click workshops at the top. You can learn more about the showrunner sessions and join an email list. It's not our newsletter. It's just to get updates about our workshops specifically and be the first to know when we open enrollment for the next session. So marketingshowrunners.com and click workshops at the top. I'll also place a link in your show notes. All right, mailbag time. We have five great questions from five great listeners, and I love hearing from you. So again, if you have a question, tweet me or ask it anywhere you can find me, and I'll add it to the list that we'll consider for the next mailbag. The, the first question today is from Abby Sullivan. Abby was actually a guest on Three Clips. She is the host and executive producer of a daily podcast called Recur Now for her employer, ProfitWell, which is an analytics software company. And she, so Abby's like an official showrunner. She makes a daily podcast, y'all. I don't know if you can consider doing a daily show. She does it with two co-hosts, but I mean, unbelievable effort. And her question is about that effort because daily is not easy. She asks, how do you maintain a creative headspace when you're under deadline? Okay, so I have a really strong stance on this, I think. But the punchline is that part of being a professional is doing it when you don't feel like it. You publish because it's Tuesday, not because you feel awesome today. You know, the train might feel like it's struggling to chug down those tracks. It's just starting up and every motion forward is really difficult. You don't have that momentum behind you. It's a struggle. And by the way, part of this answer is when you do achieve any kind of momentum in any place in your creative world, lean into it. Use it to spark ideas or pieces of the project for a future date when you might not be feeling it. 
So how do we do it? We do it because we're professionals. So we show up even when we aren't feeling it. But here's the real question. How do we get ourselves into the right headspace more frequently? Yes, there's going to be times when we're not there, but how do we get there more often? Let me dive into that. In 2012, I worked for an online gaming startup, and I had to learn about game mechanics, which are these little design features and triggers that a lot of designers use to delight and engage and ensnare players and create their experiences. So a really easy example that you'll find outside of games is a progress bar when you fill out a survey. So seeing how much progress you've made in a survey makes you more likely to finish the survey because you want to fill up that progress bar. So that's a game mechanic. Now, the single best thing I learned when doing my research was a word called telic, T-E-L-I-C, telic. Telic means done to a definite end. In other words, a chore. Game designers dread this term. To make something telic is to remove the experience and the enjoyability of their game. So if you die at level two of Super Mario and you keep having to restart the level, you that fun experience is now a chore. You're like, I know I jump here, I go under here, I go over there, and I just want to get back to the place where I'm intrinsically motivated. That's the opposite of something that's telic, intrinsic, or paratelic. So when something is telic, you feel like, I just want to end this thing. I am ending-oriented. You just want to complete it already. It's a chore. When a task is paratelic or intrinsic, you feel moment-oriented. The process is the point. The experiencing of the thing, the work itself, or the game itself, is its own reward. When something is telic, we tend to avoid it, or delay doing it, or cut corners. We're not as mindful. We focus on automation, or the lowest common denominator. We look for hacks and cheats and ways to hide or ways to escape. That's what happens when something is telic. I mean, think about this. Do you want to sweep your floor later? Probably not. I think you'd rather blink your eyes and be done with it already. Sweeping is telic. It's a chore. You just want the clean floor. But imagine if you felt intrinsically motivated to sweep. If you just enjoyed a good sweep every so often, guess what happens? You would have cleaner floors. So the thing is, when we can focus on the process, not the end result, we tend to get better end results. When we're moment-oriented, intrinsically motivated, we seek out that thing more and we seek to improve it all the time. The trick, if there is such a thing, is to figure out how to become intrinsically motivated to do the work. So think about not sweeping your floor, think about instead eating ice cream. I don't know about you, but I am intrinsically motivated to eat ice cream. I don't wanna just finish it already. I don't turn to my wife and go, "Uh, hey, can you just finish this for me? Yeah, I really just want a dirty bowl. No, I'm moment-oriented when I eat ice cream. And because I am, I seek it out more, and I find ways to improve it. I mean, I eat ice cream way too often, and I eat it in extra large cups or cones. I eat it with extra large amounts of toppings. Oh, by the way, don't get me started on adults who order kitty sizes. Kitty sizes are for quitters. So let's go back to showing up each day to do our work. You won't always feel intrinsically motivated. Sometimes it does feel like a chore, but if you can find one little piece that gives you energy instead of drains you of it, one little thing that you get to do that doesn't feel like a chore, it feels like the thing itself is exciting to do, if you can figure out that one little tiny momentum builder, you can get the train moving a lot faster and get that feeling again. You can generate it on demand. So for me, 
I feel most present and moment-oriented. It's most intrinsically motivating to me to write episode intros. I love writing intros to episodes. I love copying my heroes and trying to mimic new things. I love intriguing audiences. I love playing in these intros. It's ice cream. It's not sweeping my floor. Publishing an entire new episode might feel like a chore, but I can find that little thing that doesn't, and suddenly, on the back of that thing, I can do the rest. So this could be moments inside of an episode. It could be certain types of episodes that you dip into once in a while. If you can find the thing that makes you intrinsically motivated so it doesn't feel like a chore, you can get into a better headspace on demand. All right, Abby, I hope that helps. Thanks for the question. Thanks for doing the work you do. Keep showing up every day. You are a hero among podcasters, my friend. And the next time something feels telic, look for the tiny pockets where finishing it isn't the goal. Doing it is. And then follow that feeling. Okay, Jim Samuel asks, how can I evaluate whether there's a sufficient audience for a podcast idea I have and would like to pursue? So here's the quick answer. It deserves a longer explanation. I'll give one. You can't know, so you just have to try. Like, you have a sense, you have taste, you have a desire to say something. The worst case scenario is you practice and improve and articulate your thoughts, and a few people are now big fans of you. Like, the worst case scenario is almost nothing happens publicly, but you get better. So don't podcast because you're trying to get famous. Don't podcast because you're trying to vet if there's market demand. Create a show because you have something meaningful that you need to say. Um, someone asked me recently why I like to write. I write because I can't not. So create a podcast because you can't not. It's self-expression. That can be its own reward. Um, but also you're, you're here to serve and to make positive change and help others. And you, you can figure this out in any number of ways, including just launch a pilot run of episodes and see what you learn. Um, but, but I don't think it's possible to justify the reason you're making something ahead of time to know it's going to work. And I think it's a little bit wasteful. I think there, there's a temptation to gather up all our answers to justify acting when I think we should act to find our answers. So let's go deeper into that for a second. I think we assume that someone who creates content that we admire, whether they write or podcast or anything, they have the answers. And so they're doing something because they have the answers or they know it's going to work ahead of time. I think it's the willingness to say, I don't have the answers, but I'm searching for them. And that happens to be what my show is. Or... I don't know if it's going to work and I'm trying it. Those are the things that actually work because anything else just panders to what people say they already want, which means you're a commodity among a sea of commodities. So, so back to this idea that we think someone who creates content has the answers or knows something that it's, it's guaranteed to work. We, we often refer to those people as like visionary. It's almost like they can see what we can't. And I think that's wrong. I think, I think it is about a kind of sight that these people have, but it's not that they can see into the future with certainty and clarity. I think it's a combination of two other things, which, by the way, we all possess. These people see the present more clearly than most. That's the first thing. Most of our work is based on lagging indicators, like pre-existing demand for something, people already searching for something and asking for something, or best practices and conventional wisdom. Most of our work is based on looking backwards to inform our movement forwards. But making real change is trying to observe the status quo right now, find what's broken about it. And then, this is the second part, despite the lack of overt existing demand for your solution or idea, visionaries solve problems in ways that people don't know to ask for. So they see the present more clearly, they base their work on 
first principles on the present, not on best practices, not on the past. That's one form of vision. And their second form is they imagine what could be. They're not certain that it should be. It feels inescapable to them, but it's still imagination. They provide value that people didn't know to ask for because people are not you. You know to provide something that someone is not asking for overtly. So these visionaries that we admire, they don't have a vision of the future. They don't know what will be, but they have a vision for the future. They know what they'd like it to be, and they relentlessly pursue that because they have belief. So this is about belief, not certainty. This requires imagination, not analytics. You won't know definitively that something will work. And by the way, that's okay. Not only because that's how real change happens and how creative work works, uh, but it also allows you to raise your hand and say, wow, this is broken. This could be better. Don't you agree? Or, hey, we, we don't really understand this thing here. Why don't we try to understand it more? And if you agree or if you like that, I'm going on a journey to figure this out. It just happens to be a show. So come with me. And I'll end this answer here. Shows are about subscription. But when I say subscription, I don't mean subscription to a feed. I don't mean clicking a button that says subscribe or download. I mean subscription to your ideas. The classic idea of signing your name to something, aligning with something. I am subscribed to their belief system, to this belief system, to this movement, to that vision of the world. So can you gauge existing demand for your exact thing? No, I think it's a fool's errand. But you can become this kind of sleuth for the truth. And then you can take your audience on a journey with you towards something better. To me, that's what making a show is all about. All right, next question is from Ryan Wakefield. Ryan jumped into second Jim's question, so I hope I helped address your concern there too, Ryan. And then he added, how do we pick a topic to discuss? So there's, there's like a tactical thing here and a strategic thing. Really quickly, the tactical thing is to create an idea backlog. It's like a creator's most favorite possession in the world. It's like almost like you would save your photo album before everything was digital. If you had a house on fire, you'd save the photos. Your idea backlog is like the thing that if an app you're using crashes, you want to save. And so my idea backlog is in Evernote. I just have a bulleted list of everything, every quote, every link, every half-baked concept, anything that's like a thread that I want to pull, whether I came up with it or I found it. That's tactical. But I'm also a believer that you should inform what's going in there with, with a strategy, the creative development of your show. That should supersede your episode topics, strategy before tactics. Tactics then become clearer. So there are two ways to look at this. First and foremost, just start creating. I, I want to do more research. I want to mitigate the risk here. How do I know? You don't. You can't. You won't. Just start creating. Like, I, I have this idea. Great. Do it. Okay, so, but I want feedback on my, like, personal content plan. No, just make some stuff. I promise you so much becomes clearer as you start to make. You get better. You're forced to articulate your ideas. And so those ideas get stronger. And if you answer one question in one episode, that'll lead you to new questions and new ideas. Making begets making. The lack of momentum is the problem, not the lack of clarity. Make to understand. Create to understand. Don't create because you know it's the exact right topic to create about. So I like to say that making is a muscle, and so you just need to start moving your body, so to speak, in this case, moving your creative body, and you'll realize, oh, actually, I think I prefer to go for a jog than lift weights. So cool, I'm going to try a bunch of stuff, create a bunch of stuff, and then I'm going to focus later. 
Don't worry about things like the audience at first because your goal is to find your voice and your focus. And then when you feel ready, really rally others to the cause. So that's one way to do this. Just start making, find your focus through the act of making. Now, I'm aware that some people have higher stakes. They're being asked to make something for their employer or you are making something for your employer. There is another way to be more modular in this approach, a little less messy, although it is still about practice. The other way to do this is to craft your show's premise. Actually spend time developing the premise of your pod. There's only three real pillars to any show. The premise, the format, the talent. The premise is what your show is about and how you explore that. What are you exploring and how? The format is how is it delivered in the episodes? And the talent is you, is the person or the people working on the show and making this stuff, manifesting the premise into the format. And so often we don't spend time developing those things, especially the premise. And I I like to develop the premise first, not only because it's like the most abstract, but it informs all the rest, everything else. Um, And I like to develop the premise with four different steps. So first and foremost, I write about what frustrates me. So for example, uh, one of my shows is called Unthinkable. And the first thing I did to create that show was I wrote a blog post, which was called How to Work in Marketing When You're Bothered by Suck. Long story short, I was really frustrated by marketing and marketing's lack of long-term thinking, uh, the lack of care for craft, the lack of focus on the content part of content marketing. And so I articulated my frustration and then also my vision for the better way. And the gap between the status quo and my vision for the future was where my show would fit. And I didn't have any concrete answers. I just knew I wanted them. So I said, okay, if you believe what I believe, if you're frustrated by what I'm frustrated by, this article is me sending up a flare into the sky. I hope other people come running to it. And we're going to go search for some answers and some stories and some ideas. So I invited others who felt the frustration I felt into a journey of understanding. That journey is called a show. So try writing about what frustrates you why it frustrates you, and what you want to make better. Or if you're not like me and you don't start your creative process from frustration and fixing things, that's what I do. If you're not like me, just think and write about something you really want to understand more deeply. Because that's really what a show is for, going deeper in a world trending shallow. And that can be your first little spark of your premise. Now, you're not there yet. I call that step the frustration statement. It could be private, like writing in a Evernote file or your you know personal app of choice or a diary or a notebook. I do everything in public. So mine happen to be a blog post, but that's just me. It's not better or worse. So write about your frustration or the thing you want to understand more deeply. And then there's three heuristics you can execute in order to get all the way to your premise. These three things are called the one simple story, the empathy statement, and the XY premise pitch. Now, this is a process. It's really hard to execute in theory and just talk to you about it. So I'd recommend actually using this article that I wrote as like a companion to your actual work, like have it up, go through the process yourself, do a lot of writing. Um, So if you want, you can go to marketingshowrunners.com and just click the search icon and search the words premise guide, premise guide. It'll be right there at the top at marketingshowrunners.com, premise guide. It'll walk you through this entire premise development process that also involves those three heuristics that I just mentioned. So the short answer, how do you know what topics to talk about? You either just start creating stuff and you find your focus along the way, or if you do wanna do some show development and strategy planning, develop your premise 
and then all your ideas flow very logically from your desire to explore it. All right, the next question is from Iona Friedman, who asks, how do I think about inviting and synthesizing listener feedback? I love this one. Okay, so I came out of the software industry with companies like Google and HubSpot, and then I worked in in VC where we invested in software startups. So my answer is a direct result of all that software experience. And I think about inviting and synthesizing feedback from customers or your audience the same way, or I try to mimic the people who I admired most in that field, which were amazing product managers. They had a very specific way of doing this stuff. But before we get there, let's just start with Henry Ford and also the big question of whether or not you should listen to your audience. So a lot of pixels and ink have been used up on, on missing the point entirely of Ford's most famous quote. And, and maybe you've heard it. It goes something like this. If I listened to the customer, they would have asked for faster horses. So the idea here is that if you ask somebody else what they want as a solution to their problems, they don't know what's possible ahead of time. So they anchor to the status quo and ask for incremental improvements off of what they already know to be possible, or they ask for the entirely wrong things. So if I listened to the customer, they would have asked for faster horses because the customer isn't an inventor, an innovator, or even an expert at building cars or understanding transportation possibilities. And the customer certainly couldn't begin to fathom the assembly line, the mass production of machinery as robust as the car that Henry Ford really popularized and, and made possible. If I listened to the customer, they would have asked for faster horses. The thing about this quote is that it's not the actual quote. He didn't say if I listened to the customer. He said, if I asked what people wanted, they would have said faster horses. So that's the first thing about the question here, about gathering and understanding feedback from the customer. It's ineffective and actually counter to our own desires to make things better, to simply react to what the customer says they want. And that's why this distinction in the quote is so important. He didn't say, if I listened to the customer, he said, if I asked what they wanted. See, we're in the business of making art, of challenging the status quo, of saying to the audience through our shows or any of our work, look, I have a vision for the future, for where I want things to go. If you share that belief, join this journey. It just so happens for us to be audio. But the work you and I do is about improving the way things are, not pandering to the way they already are. Don't just give others what they say they want. They don't know what you know. They can't do what you're doing. They're trying to understand the status quo and improve the status quo. You're trying to understand the status quo and create a better future. Don't just give others what they say they want. Give them what you know they need. The things that people don't know to ask for are the things that usually transform them the most. So do we listen to the customer? Absolutely. But should we react to what they say they want from us? No. So let's go back to the software industry. Really, really great product managers don't ask for feedback. They seek to understand problems. Their unique role is to intimately understand where the customer is struggling and what they're already trying to do to solve that pain. And then because they have taste, because you have taste and vision and you're serving them, you can say, here, I brought you this thing, this content, this show, this solution, this journey. I think this will solve the problem. They didn't know to ask for it, but it's what they need. So you don't go to the doctors and say, I want surgery. You say, this hurts. And the doctor goes, got it. Okay, we're going to own this problem, really, truly understand it, then propose the best possible solution, 
whether or not the patient could have asked for that solution, whether or not we know to ask for the treatment we're getting, that's another matter. And in fact, most of us could not have done so. So don't invite feedback. Reach out to people and talk to them. Schedule time with them. Become a part of the community online or offline when it's appropriate. And there, look for the things they're saying they're frustrated by, curious about, or hoping to accomplish and really dig into that. Why? What are you already doing to go down that path? Then don't merely react because they said they want something. Have the vision yourself. Be proactive in providing value. Things they didn't know to ask for and didn't know were possible. That is how real change happens. Oh, and by the way, that quote from Henry Ford, yeah, there's no proof he actually said that. But really, does it matter? Okay, last question today. Zach Sugarman, uh, he asked, how do you grow your podcast past just the people you know in person? So there's this big focus problem that a lot of marketers have, and it's not that they have shiny object syndrome, although certainly that might be the case. I think it's that they focus their resources and attention and effort on the wrong things. They focus on the cold outreach, the net new introduction, the, the from scratch relationships between them and others that don't know them yet. And the thing is, if you can deliver your show like a gift to the few people you already do know, and they really, really loved your show, they should be willing to share it with somebody you don't know, who will then love it and share it with somebody else that you don't know. And they will then love it and on and on this goes. So don't picture it like a funnel where you have to expand the top of the funnel. Picture it like concentric circles. And your role in all of these concentric circles is to actually make sure the people who are in the medium-sized circles move into the small circles. The people that are casual observers or trustworthy fans become super fans. And those super fans create word of mouth for you. And I think a show is a unique vehicle for doing this too, because a show is this relationship accelerant. Shows are about time spent and deep resonance, going deeper in a world trending more shallow. So those two types of audience, passionate supporters of your work that already love you and casual observers, those are the easiest to serve. And if they're not excitedly sharing your show, that's your problem, not getting more people to the show. Because think, there's already a relationship. And we all have relationships in our lives. And, and by the way, if we don't have relationships with the people we're hoping to serve, how are we going to hope to serve them? That's the problem right there. We have to go out and participate in the community before we want to make something for that community. So if you haven't done that yet, stop making content and just go participate in the community. That interaction comes first, then your work becomes the gift because you're trying to solve a problem or address a desire, make things better for them. But you have to start with the them part of that equation. Anyway, the entire goal of this work with your show is to start with whoever already knows, likes, and trusts you, and to create this gift for those existing superfans and casual observers. And this is the punchline. Those people then stick and stay longer, which makes them more valuable to your business and your show, and they have more opportunities and are more likely to refer new people to you. So again, it's not a funnel, and the goal is growing the top. It's concentric circles, and the goal is getting progressively tighter inward, deepening relationships as you go. Then those deeper relationships go outward on your behalf. The thing is, and the problem is, we assume we're already doing that. And that's the danger. 
We think we're already making something capable of creating super fans. We think I have a show. People will listen to the show. If only I could get people to the show, then they will love it. If only people knew we existed, we would succeed. The thing is, we haven't really dug in and given critical thought and attention to the resonance of what we create. So we skip that step and then we go out to the outer circles and try to meet these new people cold. But those are the people least likely to engage with us. It's an expensive, inefficient way to grow. If we can set aside this panic we feel over like quickly creating an okay asset to then really focus on the marketing, if we flip those and really focus on the thing that serves the audience and somewhat on the marketing, if we went deeper with the product, in this case a podcast, and figured out are we actually resonating, the rest tends to take care of itself. We can better grow on top of that really strong base, who, by the way, is going out and bringing new people to us. So in this way, the experience that we create does the growing, not publicly promoting the experience or getting increasingly clever about where we tell people about the experience. People who experience the thing help grow the thing. After all, if the people who already know, like, and trust you aren't willing to engage and share your work... Why would anyone else? So don't skip a step. Don't focus on growth. Focus on retention, on depth, on resonance before thinking about reach. The problem is we assume we're doing that. We assume we've invested enough to get me over, to get me out the door. And now the goal is brute forcing our show into people's lives. This is an order of operations thing. We've skipped the first step. Focus less on sharing your podcast and more on making a podcast worth sharing. All right, please keep the questions coming. I love doing stuff like this. I haven't done it enough on this show in particular. If you like this one, I'll keep doing them. And I'll be back with more regular Three Clips episodes really soon. A reminder before we go to please check out the new page about our workshops on the website. Uh, It has some visuals and ideas and heuristics that we explore. You'll see some testimonials and some more FAQs and costs and things like that. The next session launches late August 2020. The specific date is TBD, but it's coming. And then we'll do more sessions after that. So you can head to marketingshowrunners.com and click workshops at the top or check your show notes for a link. I'm Jay Akunzo and I believe this work is not about who arrives. It's about who stays. That's what we should focus on together in your work and in mine. It's not about who arrives. It's about who stays. So thank you so much for staying with me and I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.